0: You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast.
1: Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends, and and hunt those. The roof blew off, and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing.
0: Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips,
2: tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today.
0: We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Hal?
1: Doing well, Dave. Thanks for having me, man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for putting this, uh, some time here today to talk about some important topics. Um, I don't know your, your full background. I know you have this amazing podcast, which, uh, you know, reaches out to a lot of people, you're connected to, you know, backcountry hunters and anglers, which is a very important group, and you've got a lot more going on. So let's just take it back really quick before we jump into everything on all that. Let's talk about how you first got into hunting and fishing. Has this been around your whole life? Where did you grow up? What's your first memory?
1: That's a big question. Um, I've been hunting and fishing since I was as could really little. Probably I started hunting when I was nine. Um, but I grew up outside. Well, we were in North Alabama in what's now the giant city of Huntsville. And uh when I was eleven, uh my parents, they had never been happy in town. They bought a piece of ground out of town and we lived out. So I was raised out in the country there, which was kind of the origin story of if I've got one. <laughs> yep. Uh but I was uh, I had good people in my life. My my father was really busy, but he had grown up in South Alabama. And it loved it. He he knew how to fish and hunt and, and hunt. He didn't hunt much. But they were like good enablers. Um, like my mother cooked everything. She cooked rabbits and squirrels and um she was not a hunter at all. Uh but she was they were great enablers. Um and then I was obsessed with fishing since the, my earliest memory. I, I really don't I don't understand how the key fits in that lock really. Yeah. But I was obsessed with what fish were doing when I wasn't watching. I was, I I remember in first grade drawing pictures of this hole in this, it's called Aldridge Creek and what all the fish were doing down in there. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And I I was like first grade, like you're supposed to be drawing a clock on a paper plate, (laughs) which by the way, I failed. I got a factory, but I, I drew pictures of, of Brim and, and crappie and, uh, I, you know, catfish, I was obsessed with catfish and red horse suckers. <laughs> hmm.
2: Nice. Yeah.
1: I don't have an explanation for that, you know?
0: Yeah. That's amazing. So you pretty much, I mean, since day one, you know, you had it in you. What, I love that, that your parents, you know, you're in the, in town and then they moved out to this property. What was that like? Was that a, when you moved out there and I, and I asked this because we've been talking a little about doing some moving around and, and we've got a couple of little kids and I'm always interested like for you, was that a game changer when you moved out? Did you love that?
1: I, it's hard to imagine. I, I like thinking about um, what are un, unbelievably positive things. Sometimes you know that that occur in life, and um, that was a game changer beyond all my I believe my my understanding. It, it was like being released um, into a, just a, a an infinite world. I, I don't know. I can't. I can't. Yep. It's hard it was everything that I was looking for because I—I mean, as a little kid, I read like James Fenimore Cooper and I read uh, Zane Grey, mm. uh, *The Spirit of the Border*, and all I wanted was to roam around in those incredible hardwood forests and 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 bottomlands of Alabama, you know, and look at things and fish and hunt. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm 11 years old, which is a good age because you're you're self sufficient somewhat, right? Yep. And all of a sudden, I was there. And it was all there in front of you. It was amazing. I, I, I mean, I can remember putting a uh, number four shot in one pocket, number eights for in case you had you saw doves, <laughs> number fours in case there were ducks on the creek, uh, and then uh, for squirrels as well. <laughs> and then you just go study the creek and wait for these red horse to show up in March. That would be like the end of all the hunting season, the beginning of the fishing. Um, and we had a county lake, a county public fishing lake near there. And the crappie would start showing up there like April 2nd. Then as the red horse moved out of the Creek. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But it was, yeah, it was, uh, uh it was in- incredible. And yeah. my parents had a big garden that I had to work in and that took too. You're talking about like things you don't like and things you do, you know? Yep. I mean, and to this day, I still grow this huge garden and we live off of that. Mm. Um, wow. There's certain things just work out. Yep. And of course, many things don't, right? <laughs> yeah. You probably didn't
0: realize it, right? That's the thing at, at, at the time, what your parents did, but it was a major thing that probably, probably uh, guided a lot of your life now. And Do you look back at it and see that that move your parents made made a big influence on where you are now?
1: A hundred percent. The other thing it did was uh, I did farm work in, you know, late middle school and high school. And so when I was 24, 25, I came to Montana. I just put my name up at the co-op like uh need a job, you know, <laughs> and you know, I was driving tractor on a hay crew. I don't know, you know, like 48 hours later. Wow.
0: That's amazing.
1: So, and I couldn't have done that. Had I grown up in town, I wouldn't have had that option.
0: Yeah. Right. So you start out in, in Alabama. What is that, uh, you know, how does that move out west? It seems like we've talked to a lot of people who have made the move out west, you know, and all that. How was that for you? Did you make some move? Did you make a trip out somewhere and then say, like, hey, this is the place I want to be?
1: In a way, I did, yeah. I was, I was already writing then, and um, I, had a, I got into the Yellow Bay Writers Workshop, which was on Flathead Lake in Montana. And Tom McGlain was teaching there and uh Annick Smith was running it. Annick Smith, who was then uh was with Bill Kittredge, who's one of the great prose writers of Montana and the West. He's passed on now. But uh it was a gathering of uh writers from around the West. And uh I went there on the train and I met Phil Condon, he's a writer out of Missoula, um, great guy, and uh that was the fires of nineteen eighty eight. And I was in a bar in uh, what became it is Whitefish, used but used to be a logging town. Now it's like a I don't know what you gl- the glitterati, <laughs> but uh, in the in the I think it was the Paradise Bar in there. And this guy came in and he said, "We're hiring. We're hiring on fire crew. We're hiring truck drivers." <laughs> and I I was looking around and I just saw, well, hell, you know, you can a person could live here, yeah. And if you were hard up in the bar, somebody comes and hires you to go on fire crew. Yep. Um, I was about twenty. I think I was 24 then.
0: Wow. That's so cool. God. So you just it did a
1: different world.
0: Yeah. You just did it though. I mean, that, you, it feels like you just went out and you said, Hey, I, I'm want to, I want to go do this and figure it out. And you kind of figured it out on your own, met some people that were good mentors along the way. Is that how it worked?
1: That is how it worked. And um, the, the added thing was that on the train, there was a young man named Denny, somebody who was from Whitefish, and he was a tree. This is this kind of gets me into a longer story, yeah. but he was a tree planter, a hodad tree planter, and I was a hodad tree planter in Alabama working for the paper company as a contractor. Hmm. And when he found out that I was a tree planter, he was extremely nice to me. Like we went out and drank beers, and and I realized then that for every real tree planter, these guys recruited. They got a bonus. <laughs> oh right. And uh so I he was telling me all about how tree planting worked in the Rocky Mountains, and I, I got obsessed with that. When I went home, I knew that's what I was gonna come back and do. And it actually took me a few years to get on a tree planting crew here. Um it was not as it, it compare it was like fishing for bluegills versus spearing uh tuna. Mm, right. Tree planting in Alabama versus tree planting in the sure. Rockies. <laughs> yeah right uh. but anyway that's kind of how that worked I was just saw all these it was the same things I was doing in Alabama but writ on a somewhat larger canvas
0: Squalla fly fishing combining advanced materials with fishing focused purpose built design Squalla waders, jackets, shirts, pants and insulation are made for us to help wet fly swing listeners right now Squalla is offering a 10% discount on your next order Just visit squalafishing.com and use the coupon code wetflyswing10 at checkout. That's Squala, S-K-W-A-L-A. Gear for us, the serious angler. What is the, because you have this amazing podcast with all these topics, you know, and the conservation and, and the writing. When did that for you, the conservation piece, you know, and you have all this, the public lands, but there's a lot into it. We've talked to a lot of great groups, Trout Unlimited, FFI, many groups like you, you know, like BHA sort of thing. But for you, when did the conservation start? When did you start thinking about that?
1: Um, well, I mean, it was a natural outgrowth when I grew up reading Field and Stream and Sports of Field. An outdoor life, right? Mm-hmm. And every other fishing and hunting magazine there was full cry. The magazine of dogs, uh, and then fur fishing game, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all of that. Those magazines all had a conservation element back then because without that conservation, none of the hunting and fishing existed. You know, and I'll tell you, Dave, if you grew up in the seventies. Yeah. A early eighties like that. You saw this the kind of development replacing the woods and fields. Like yeah. I, I tell people this story. I the longest shot I've ever seen intentionally made on a whitetail was a buddy of mine on the porch of his little house. He said, you know, kind of like one of those things, watch this.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: And it was an eight hundred and twenty five yard shot Jeez. with a browning. And we went and picked up that deer and dragged it back. And there must be eight or nine houses between where he stood on that porch and where that week picked up that deer. Wow. Just shot
0: like that was a normal thing back then?
1: It was not abnormal. He owned that land. He had about he had about seven hundred and fifty acres in there. And that's all houses now. Yeah. And that creek is still has fish in it and stuff, but it has suffered the the torments of the damned and uh if you witness that as a fisherman fisherman and a hunter and a kind of a just a person who lives in it um i don't know how you can be anything but an activist in conservation Mm. yeah um because it's so clear that it, it either you act to conserve or your kids and grandchildren don't have it yeah it's it's just an obvious equation
0: Right. So you saw that just from your own. You didn't have to, um, well, you read a lot too, but.
1: I was reading it. I mean, I I grew up, Ted Trueblood was still, I I think I was reading older Ted Trueblood stuff in in, uh, Outdoor Life, the back page of Field of Stream, um, all of it, you know, and and it was all kind of married in, integrated to just the joy of hunting and fishing, like Pat McManus was writing Mm. those incredibly funny pieces, you know. And they're all based on living in a place that has clean water and beautiful hunting and fishing. And those things don't exist by accident. It was so clear to me. I I watched them channelize that Aldridge Creek yeah. in Huntsville. And we, and this is probably awful, but we used to shoot minnows with BB guns, you know? Oh, yeah. And uh, we would just live on Aldridge Creek as little bitty kids, like eight, seven. Yeah. And they not just channelized it, they cemented that creek, which Jeez. caused so much trouble like like 25 years later they were trying to Flooded. restore it right yeah and because it was just a disaster but they cemented the place where we as little kids we kind of lived this feral existence Yep, and all of a sudden there was no room for the feral right Dang. it was gone yeah and that was man I, that was eight years old
0: that was eight years old yeah and uh yeah, I mean, there's so many examples of that, you know, and I don't want to ever get into these episodes trying to paint a, a negative picture of, you know, everything, climate change, changes in our stuff. But I think it's actually a positive. I always, I'm an optimistic person. So I actually see where we're heading. I see a lot of good things. Um, I mean, oh, man. right. I mean, do you see that? Do you, do you stay in all this stuff? Give me some, you know, the optimistic view of everything. Like, what's your take?
1: Oh, uh, well, the optimistic view is that the world is incredibly powerful and, you can like, like this restoration work that I'm helping with right now on the sagebrush landscape. Yeah, um, you can act and have an immediate result. I mean, I follow this guy, Kyle Liebarger, down in Alabama. He's got Native Habitat Project.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's a, he's like an Instagram He he's an unlikely Instagram hero because hmm. he's just like a really normal Alabama hunting, fishing botanist. Yeah. But they plant, they do pollinator belts and grassland restorations on any scale, and you know pollinator belts in people's yards produce this incredible <laughs> amount of like biodiversity hmm. right right away, immediately. And um, I just see, yeah, I see a huge amount. This dam removal stuff we're doing yeah. all over the country. Um, all you have to do you. I like things that are, I've I've learned, even though I'm a writer and stuff, and I I have a big imagination, I guess. uh, I like things that are actionable, observable, quantifiable. Hmm. And that kind of conservation is all three of those things, you know, writ large, man. Yeah. You can do so much, and people are learning more and more. Um, I mean, local agriculture is exploding right now because people want good food. And those kind of things are fostering elements of biodiversity that we didn't have. Um, I see a rising tide of of just understanding and it's almost like a almost like a renaissance in human mm. thinking on this stuff. So yes, I'm not just optimistic. I'm uh I love it. Yeah. I think it's fine. You know, we're running neck and neck with a lot of problems, but what is the main problem? The main problem is indifference. Yeah. It's not hatred, it's not Ignorance, no. it's indifference. And who is less indifferent? Who is more like act motivated than a person who loves to fish? Yeah. You know, um, I mean, that river that you understand as a fly fisherman, because that's kind of a, a next level study. Yep. You know, you can drift a a nightcrawler on a circle hook and do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But to dry fly fish a river is to study that river and to kind of immerse oneself in the whole system, right? Right. And you are going to know that place and fight for that place in a way that it's just, it's the opposite of indifference.
0: Yeah, you're in it. And I'm more, I'm definitely more of a a fisherman, but you know, I still do some hunting and I feel like hunting for me, it's the same thing. Like I remember starting out hunting and I've gotten better at it. And now, you know, I'm at this other level where, yeah, you have this connection to the, the, yeah. the habitat, nature. And, and, you know, when you, when you shoot an animal, it's a whole thing, you know, this whole thing, it's hard to explain, but it sounds like you do a little both hunting, fishing. Are you kind of trying to, are you equal or are you, do you do a lot of both of those?
1: Uh, I do a lot of both and, um, just lately my hunting has been less because of uh work. Mm. Um and hunting here is a big commitment. Like uh, uh I don't have horses, but I uh you know, it's like you go into say the Bob Marshall or Scapegoat Wilderness and um there's a lot of there's there's not as much just easy hunting. Mm. And so I do try to I try to kill all of our meat every year. Mm. Um but some years that does yeah. yeah. Are you in Idaho or where are you at? i mean in Mon- central montana oh
0: central montana okay
1: yeah i mean i i came here I, in the eight, late 80s i think the first year i was legal i killed an uh five by five bull behind this ranch that i was working on yeah buddy yeah, i thought i'd hit i just Jeez. again, it was one of these things where you just changes your life oh, you know yeah. god um and i didn't kill another one for five years i i I found out both how it can be done and how difficult it can be, too. Yeah. Um, and that just hooked me even more, you know? Yeah. But I grew up that whitetail hunting in Alabama, still something I I totally love. Um, I've never gotten over my infatuation like with Alabama. Uh, I was in the Bankhead National Forest last winter, and that's in like central Alabama there. I just, I don't know that I've ever seen any place that was more fascinating than that in my whole life. Yeah. And I've been lucky in traveling around, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We've done episodes kind of like you all over the, you know, everywhere, but we're doing more and more, you know, down, down south, down out in that neck of the woods. And the more you get into it, you realize, yeah, there's all sorts of amazing resources, fish species no, you hadn't heard of, people are chasing. Sure yeah right <laughs> all these things we did yeah. a red-eyed bass was a species we did an episode on recently and i didn't know anything about
1: it who was that with if you don't mind me
0: uh, asking oh man what was that i'm drawn up i i got so we do so many guests now i'm drawn up like i'll, I'll find yeah. that for you That's
1: we'll fine yeah that is um that fly fishing for red eyes what got me into fly fishing in high school oh no kidding
0: yeah oh wow well here it is you should check this out too if you don't well you probably know matt but matt lewis he's a conservation yeah i know him well yeah I know him well 516 we'll put a link in the show notes to that one It was a really awesome episode
1: okay yeah he is awesome in that that some of those bankhead rivers they're like that's the headwaters of all that stuff right yep and um yeah i just uh i was i did a lot of that i i had a little eagle claw uh well big eagle claw uh, rod and reel with an automatic reel. Yeah. When I was really young, my, and it turned out my father was good at good. He was a good fly fisherman for bass. Huh. And I didn't know that until I was like nine years old because he was so busy. Huh. And I watched him catch a big one on a popper, a big largemouth on a popper. And again, like I was like, holy smokes, look at this. And then he gave me that eagle claw. And then years later, I kind of rousted it out hmm. when I got a driver's license. Oh, yeah. And I started figuring out red eye. God. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's
0: so cool. Well, yeah.
1: What did your dad do? He was a lawyer. A lawyer? Oh, wow. And we had five. I had four sisters. So, uh, And they were all in college. I, we were older than I was. And they were all in college at the same time. So when I was coming along, um, he worked. Like, he was, I don't know. I wouldn't say he was a workaholic. He just, he had to work. He worked all the time. And um, that paid for our like life out there in the country, in the Southern Cumberland's and all. Um, and but he uh, he was a very he was very busy, and he had come up on the Chattahoochee River, and he he had I mean he had been a fly fisherman. He had me when he was older, so this goes way back. Like he was in World War II. Oh wow. Um, but they fished the Chattahoochee in in Alabama around uh, Lynette, Alabama, Chambers County. And back so long ago, you know, and he was big into conservation too, because he loved nature and he loved beautiful like trees and stuff like that. And he had seen that same thing that I grew up in where, you know, like the clear cutting of the Southern hardwoods and stuff like that. So he was really aware of all that stuff. That was part of our life, like talking about that stuff.
0: Right. Wow. So, yeah, so you definitely had a good influence early from your... Your dad, even though he was working a lot, he was still a big influence on on your, it sounds like your conservation and and outdoor stuff.
1: For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Huh.
0: Wow. It seems like now, you know, with like you guys and all with podcasting and just this everything, right? All this content stuff, the meat eater, right? You know, all the groups. seems like there's just tons of resources out there. Do you find like nowadays, um, you know, what's your take on all that? Do you feel like you've been involved in, and we can get into the podcast. I want to hear about how that started, but. You know, sure. did you jump into Were you, have you always loved this social media, the podcasting, all that, or is this kind of an add on? You figured like you had to do.
1: No, it it wasn't. It wasn't because I had to do it, Yeah, but it was an add on. Um, I never did anything with that. Uh, I didn't, it was outside of my wheelhouse, if you will. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, uh, we were talking about like being busy and stuff. Yeah. Like, I never boat hunted because September, I used to, I I always had about three buckets of income as a self employed person, right? And one of those was working, doing forestry work, which I've been doing since I was 19. And uh, so I was always finishing up. If you're in Montana and you do forestry work, September is that's the end. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever you get done in September, that's going to be it, you know? (laughs) So I was always like away from home in the woods working in September, and I would come home mid-October and go hunting. Mm. So there wasn't a lot of time for social media type stuff. I, I wasn't even aware of that stuff. And I was at a camp out with backcountry hunters and anglers, and a uh, a young young woman named Jill Albin was there, and myself and Greg Munther, who he's, a, he's probably 80 years old now, retired Forest Service, unbelievable trad bow hunter. And Munther and I were standing around this fire and he was talking to me. I was asking him questions. He has some of the greatest experience of anybody I've ever known, you know, in the in the woods hunting. And Jill came to me later and she said, Do you know that you could have recorded that conversation and in this these memories, this history would be available like to people who would, would love to hear it. And that was the birth of that. This is true. This is the, mm, <laughs> that's cool. the birth of this podcast. Nice. <laughs> um, and that's an honest story about how this came to be. I had looked into, you know, I've been a reporter as a third of my income for all my life. And I had looked into like V-Vlogs, V-L-O-G. Yep. Sure. Um, Because as a reporter, the rise of the internet, you know, killed the magazines. Yeah. And so I was always looking for how do you how do you survive, right? Yeah. So I had been looking into this, but I have a really short attention span. <laughs> and none of it had ever come to fruition until uh, Jill talked to me about this podcast. And, and about a year later, we had it set up. There
2: you go.
0: And what year was that when you set it up? You had the first episode. Right? I'm saying that that was um, 2023,
1: probably 2018.
0: Yeah, 2018.
1: Seventeen, yeah. Yeah,
0: right in the same time when we launched ours, about the same time.
1: Yeah, and it was when the technology was coming around, too, that somebody like me, who's not a technology person, could actually handle it.
0: Yeah, that's the amazing thing, is everything has gotten easier in the last 5, 10 years for doing this.
1: Yeah, and I don't see that as a bad thing. No. I, I see I see it as your podcast, my podcast. It rises or falls on its own merits. Yep. And I think it's awesome because... Uh, when I was coming up early as a writer, the gatekeepers were kind of a big problem.
0: <laughs> mm. Right, yeah, the gatekeepers, yeah, these massive magazines or these big, right, there's a few people that were running the show, and you you had to get in there. Is that how it worked?
1: That is how it works, and I was lucky, and then I, like, with Field the Stream, they were super, they were good to me. But other gatekeepers, I can, I, and I'll never name this, but sure. one time I had a story that I was pitching about a man who was a famous botanist, and um, it turned out that he had been living under an alias his whole life, and he had actually escaped from this kind of marijuana charge. Oh, wow. (laughs) And uh, the gatekeeper woman at this magazine said, let me get this clear. You want me to pay you to write a story about somebody who nobody has ever heard of? And I was like, well, this is one of the most interesting human beings I've ever known. Yeah. And she was like, nope.
0: Oh, wow. There you go. You just can't do it.
1: Yeah. You just couldn't do it. Like, wow. You know, and I never had any like capital, yeah. you know? Sure. I mean, I didn't ever, I wasn't a venture capitalist. So there was nothing there. I, I ventured from paycheck to paycheck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Like most of us, that's the thing, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I welcomed the, the advent of this more democratic form, which, you know, we call social media or podcast and blogging, um, and blogging's kind of passed on. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: A little bit. Uh Yeah, it has. I mean, it, it still works, but you know what? I always still, I've talked a lot about this, but with the podcast and I've done everything, the blogging, I've, you know, I've tried it all, but you find that thing that resonates with you and podcasts for me, when I, the first episode I recorded, it was like instantly I knew this was the thing, you know what I mean? And after failing for a lot, did you find yourself, you know, I don't know in your back in your career, like what was that thing for you that just clicked? Was it writing? What was that thing when you knew this was, you were going to have a career, this was going to be your life?
1: I think publishing, uh, I worked for iCountry News. They kind of gave me a a start and they're out of Paonia, Colorado. That's a Western Mm -hmm. news magazine, but hitting field and stream and having that, this was snail mail stuff, right? Yep. And getting that check and and getting that letter saying, well, this is really interesting. Um, I want to work with you. And I was like, holy smokes, this is actually working. And at the time, I was thin and timber. I had had a, a collapse in, I had thin timber for three months in Montana. And found out that the main contractor had defaulted on these things that I had subcontracted. Oh,
2: God.
1: And I couldn't get paid. And I was three months in. And so that Field and Stream thing, I think it was $1,700, $1,500, you know. Wow.
0: For one article.
1: Yeah, for one article. And that that was like a, and and it was an entry, you know, level. And I was like, man, this is really good. Like, this is something I can do. And I did eventually get paid for that thin, those thin-end contracts. But it showed me the tenuous nature of depending on that kind of thing and writing then you know, I could, I, it was somebody, it worked and talk about a tenuous nature. You, I used to have a, a self-drawn cartoon of, of a skeleton waiting by a mailbox <laughs> for a writing check. For
0: a writing check. <laughs> yeah. Cause you yeah. got it. I mean, that's not yeah, that's not the easiest thing to do. You know, either you, you know, we've interviewed a number of successful authors and, you know, John Garrick always comes to the top and I hear, think about him, but he talked yeah, about like, that same thing, you know, when he got started uh, you know, you got to get used to, you know, failure still, like everybody, right? Till you get there. And they are never there. I mean, right? You're never really there either.
1: No, you're never there. You're as good as your last story. And um, one of the big things about that, I I think Garak would definitely say this too, is um, if you sit around and rest and like go on a spree with the check um, and you don't start on the next story right away, you, you're you going to be really hungry. Um, but yeah, failure is a huge part of it, man
0: yeah failure yeah exactly. What yeah. was that first article in field of stream it sounds like that was your first big one. Do you remember what that article like the title what that was about
1: it was it was about captive trophy shooting in this rise in um they called it game farming you know mm, and they were doing it it this is is a long story because yeah. um they there was a ballot initiative in Montana to ban the practice. And that ballot initiative came about because of, uh, not because of my work, but because right in in conjunction with the stories I was publishing about whether people thought this was an entry. I didn't care if you wanted to shoot captive elk on your property. What was happening was they were building these giant fences to contain them. Oh, wow. And they, they were blocking a native wild mule deer migration route. Oh, man. Not good. Yeah. And these deer were getting like hammered on Highway 93 in in the, the, the Bittery Valley. Yep. And I was like, "Whoa! What does it mean to have wild game displaced by this facade or fall fake trophy shooting thing?" And I got into it really heavy. Uh, and that story was um, was infield and stream. It was, an, it was a great time in my life because I had hit on a topic that resonated with a lot of different people in the world, you know. Yeah. But it was a question about hunting, right? It's a question about what do we seek in hunting. Uh, it was a question about the, the who owns native wildlife. Can mm. you fence them in? Right, and I, and the, right. And the answer in Montana was no, you cannot. No. And this was a small community. Dave. So yeah, I knew all. I knew many of the players.
0: Oh, right. So you knew the people that were fencing in the animals and owning the property.
1: Well, they had come from California to buy this place and do that. But I knew their employees. So you say I wasn't at the level of the folks buying, you know, two thousand acres. But I was certainly at the level of the guy who dug the fence post holes.
0: Fly fishing is always in full swing at Drift Hook. Let Drifthook fly fishing outfit you with the perfect assortment of flies to prepare for your next adventure. Everything from nips to dry flies, hoppers to streamers and their Euronip fly kits All are pre-packed in a double-sided water-resistant fly box. These kits ship free directly to your door, ready to start catching some fish. If you're starting out or just looking for additional tips to help you catch more fish, Drifthook.com has over 50 instructional videos and over 200 articles to help you improve your fly fishing game. And I want to reiterate this fact right here that Drift Hook has a great resource at the website. Matt has put together some awesome blog posts. And these aren't just flabby blog posts, they are packed with lots of great content to help you on your next adventure wherever it takes you this year. With over 150 verified five-star reviews and a 30-day money-back guarantee, Drift Hook's family-owned business has you covered. You can order right now at drifthook.com and use the code SWING at checkout to get 15% off your first order. That's Drifthook, D-R-I-F-T-H-O-O-K, drifthook.com, and use SWING, S-W-I-N-G, at checkout to get 15% off your first order. You support this podcast in a great small company right now by checking out that link at Drifthook. So that, to me, I mean, that topic is just seeing, and I'm not sure what year, what what year was that when the article went out?
1: 99.
0: Yeah, 99. So it just seems to me, I mean, I was hunting, yeah, I mean, plenty, I was, I've was. i been hunting a long time. So, I mean, it just seems so crazy. I mean, I understand the challenges and business and stuff like that, but when you look at that right now and you look around the country, is that stuff still permitted in some form in other areas, other states?
1: In Montana, it's not, but in other states, for sure, Um They've learned because of the rise of chronic wasting disease in the trade in these animals, um, they are less vocal than they were. Um, but yeah, certainly it's still a thing for sure. Because that seems like <laughs>
0: the biggest challenge always, right? And I think that's what BHA, we talk a little bit about them. But it seems like the biggest challenge in this country and probably any country is the um, fragmented habitats. You know, And the more we can connect those and give animals a chance to migrate freely, the better. So. What would those people say if you talked to that person who owned the 2000, who was trying to fence them in and you said, Hey, you know, you're impacting these other wild creatures. What do you think they would say?
1: Oh, I know what he said. He said that the state fishing game agency has a product and it's a, uh mule deer elk. And I have a product that's so much better than theirs that they don't want the competition. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, it was a little bit different way of viewing uh, the earth. Sure. Yeah. Well, I go back and again,
0: this is the extreme. And I know I love to throw out you know, this sometimes, but we just, I mean, we're watching the Ken Burns, the American Buffalo, which is an amazing, yeah, it's
1: really good. I've watched the first half just last night.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I mean, it's a story of, you know, we basically wiped out the Buffalo to So we could, you know, basically take out the native Americans and have this country. And even Teddy Roosevelt, right. Said in that movie, you know, and he said, Hey, we couldn't have what we had here as a country. Maybe even the world would be different without us doing that. So it almost felt like he was saying you had to do that to get where we are. Maybe this guy, you know, same thing, right? These businesses are saying, they're thinking the same thing.
1: I think we had to go through that because nobody was asking those questions. Um, you know, what is hunting? Uh, you know, at the time um you couldn't register one of those giant monster bulls that they were producing in the fence with the Moon and Crockett Club as a legitimate uh, trophy animal. Oh, right. Um, so that question came up. Um, what is free Roman wildlife, you know? What value does that have? What value does it have to have a migration path for mule deer or antelope so that they survive into the future? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, uh, the genesis is all there in that Teddy Roosevelt era. Yeah. When we had done so much damage that you could see it was an end game. Yeah. Um, there's an incredible interview. It's old. This guy's name was A.A. A. Anderson, and he was the first supervisor of the Shoshone National, what became the Shoshone National Forest in Wyoming. And one of the things that he did, which he thought was why crazy, he hated it, was to stop the Bannock people who are uh, the Shoshone Bannock. Native Americans from an antelope hunt in May, which was a traditional thing that they had been doing for like a thousand years or more, you know, because there weren't any antelope left because the white settlers had killed them all off. Jeez. <laughs> and he A.A. Anderson was a very educated, he was a professional artist, and he was friends with Teddy Roosevelt. And he said, one of the this is one of the greatest ironies. And it, it was a big deal. Like, they got into a battle uh, over it. The Bannock people couldn't believe that anybody would stop them from doing something they'd been doing forever yeah. just because they knew the invaders had killed so much game that there wasn't enough left. Jeez. Um, but it was a time of—I I, I I tell people nowadays, that was a time of choices, and a small number of very powerful and good people— empowered by other people made those choices so that we have all this stuff today and truth is we're in another one right now Mm. because the population is triple what it was then and so if we want these things to continue we have to choose them now we have to choose that
0: Mm. how do we do that how do we that people are listening now and they all we all love the outdoors and fishing and hunting you know what what do you tell somebody that's sitting here like thinking, man, I don't know what to do like how can I have an impact on this what What do you tell that person?
1: I think that you have to join these groups for one thing, like trout Unlimited has a lot of that small scale dam removal stuff going on that that is in, over incredibly positive yep, they have a lot of creek restoration Ducks Unlimited mm. is and it's funny to I'm speaking out to have all these nonprofits, but they are one of the best mechanisms to have an impact. Um, Ducks Unlimited is the greatest wetlands scale on scale conservation group in the world. Uh, and they work a lot on private land, right? Right. And so they have liaisons with private landowners who, because of the nature of America, we they own some of the most valuable properties and they have the right to either fix them or, you know, get rid of them. And so Ducks Unlimited has been incredibly successful. Waterfowl is doing better. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's because of groups like Ducks Unlimited. It's because of the migratory, the Federal Migratory yep. Bird Act, which incentivizes landowners to conserve wetlands instead of getting rid of them. Right. Right. Um, I ask people a lot, like to look into the waters of the U.S. Rule controversy, which is how are we going to conserve our major rivers? if we don't have a mechanism for conserving wetlands and tributary creeks. Right. And that's the wordest controversy, waters of the U S mm. and, um, I've written about that ad nauseum <laughs> <laughs> and I still, yeah, I have less of an answer now than I did when I begun. Yeah. Uh, because before the Supreme court decisions, which, redefined the Clean Water Act as being very specific to navigable waterways. The Environmental Protection Agency had taken on the powers to regulate wetlands and not let people pollute tributary creeks and yeah. stuff like that, right? Yep. Yeah. But those Supreme Court decisions brought the EPA's powers back into just navigable waterways. Oh
0: wow, which is a very small amount of the rivers and waterways. Right?
1: It is. And it worked great under the 1972 Clean Water Act, which stopped people from pouring, like, toxic effluent direct into the Tennessee River. But as development has spread out and farming has gone in a much different direction than it did back then, we have the tributaries and the wetlands. It's like you're saying, well, I protected my main arteries. Yeah. You know, I just put a little o into the veins of my hands. God, <laughs> jeez. You know? Yeah. So... Uh, We're at a crossroads there, and we're at this crossroads at a time when somehow we've decided that we don't like the federal government. Hmm. And I don't really—but if you look at how we got the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, all these things, those are all federal-level rules, laws. They are. Passed by Congress. Yeah. And— for those of us who, and I'm one of them, who believe in the 10th Amendment, which empowers the states, you know, yep. The states have not picked up that slack, they have not been able to pass those laws.
0: No, I mean, that's the that is why the federal government is so, um, you know, amazing and why it's there. <clears throat> it's the stuff that the big stuff, you know, the big stuff when when we can't figure it out at the state because there are times when the local level is great and works great, but there are times when it the federal,
1: the In an ideal world, it would all be done at the local level. Exactly. But that has not been the case at all. No. And so we've leaned on this federal government of the 1970s. If you look at the major environmental, uh, like the Toxic Substances Control Act of 1976, you look at that stuff, you think, wow, what were we doing? You know, Doug Brinkley has a book called Silent Spring Revolution. Oh, yeah. And that book explains exactly what we're talking about. Who were we in 1972 when Nixon signed the Clean Water Act, you know? yeah. And what we were was a nation that was exhausted by pollution. And we had given up on the idea that giant anybody could be totally relied upon to not wreck it for all of us. And, you know, freedom implies a lot of individual responsibility, and when you're pumping your e fluid, toxic e fluid, into the Tennessee River because you don't want to pay to have it hauled off, you're not exhibiting personal responsibility. <laughs> God.
0: Yeah, we did one of our partners on a recent event we did was the River Keeper, and it was out kind of oh, in, on the East Coast. And we heard the story you know, of how that got going. And part of it is the lawsuits, right? That's, I think, at a certain point, you kind of need that piece. You, you hate to go there but sometimes you have to go there and that's how some of this gets going. But I mean, what's your take on that?
1: It was a blizzard of litigation that led to the clean air act as well.
0: Oh, it was okay.
1: And um, if you look back at the genesis of that, I think it was this Georgia pecan growers whose, whose pecan orchards that dated back to the civil war had been killed by coal fired power smoke, you know, and the people who, who were polluting realized that this litigation would be would literally you know just ruin everything for them yeah so they needed a baseline and the Clean Water Act the same um I did a profile of Ray Scott who founded the Bass angler Sportsman Society hmm. he's the father of all the bass tournaments mm-hmm. and he Ray before he is to, to me he's an American hero hmm. um before the Clean Water Act in 1972 uh Ray and bass angler sportsman society probably filed more lawsuits against polluters in the Tennessee river system than anybody ever has or will again. Hmm. Um, And he called it Bubba power. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) That's perfect. And, and they just weren't going to put up with it anymore. They love to fish for bass. He had the tournament set up. Um, You know, he's making some uh, revenue Mm -hmm. and he was just like, you know, you don't have the right to pour that, poison into this river that we all fish in and depend on for drinking water you that is not your right no and he i think he used the rivers and harbors act which was a really early uh pollution anti-pollution ordinance like from the 1800s mm. and that was the basis for the civil lawsuits that they filed and they won and it was so obvious that they were right under the law, right? That we eventually got the Clean Water Act in 1972 and Nixon signed it. Huh, wow.
0: Got all that was going. What do you, when you look at that time and it sounds like you know that well, the 70s, that period of all that versus now, you know, 2023 where we're at. I mean, are there any similarities, lots of similarities of where we are with other challenges?
1: There's a a huge number of similarities. The difference is um, that, People, even my age—I'm fifty-nine. Yeah. So uh, we have been the beneficiaries of all that stuff for so long that we forgot how we got it. All right. People don't understand why the river is safe to swim in. It was supposed to be eighty percent of them uh, U.S. waters fishable or drinkable by um, fishable and swimmable. Excuse me. Um, like by 1980, 1990, something like that. And we almost hit that goal, and now we're going back the other way, and that's mostly because of non-point source pollution. Yep. And it's mostly runoff from our current agricultural model. Ag. And runoff from impermeable surfaces.
0: Just the cities, the the concrete, the cities and the ag, or that, all that stuff running off and the oils. As you yeah. sit there, you go to a parking lot and look down, and you see a oil stream coming out of the car next to you. Right. All that. Is that what we're talking about? Part of it.
1: Yeah. That's the impermeable surfaces stuff. And, um, and go storm drains. It drain directly into rivers without a wetland buffer. Yep. You know, but the vast majority of it right now is nitrate runoff from ag mm. and the current model of corn ethanol, which is a totally federally subsidized activity. <laughs> yep,
0: right. So there you go. So you have the federal government on both sides. You got the baby. They also have them maybe doing some things that aren't helping.
1: Oh, completely, and they always have. Yeah, um, They've always been one of the biggest problems and the only main solution. I mean, that's the nature of governance. It, I, I always compare it to like a big Chevy Silverado pickup truck <laughs> with a pistol in the console. Oh, wow. Right. Somebody, it's a dangerous thing that you can use to drive to the grocery store, or you can run over, you know, some lady going home from work, or you you can do all these things with government, right? it is as you do as the people direct it yeah um but it's a dangerous power and it's a power we're going to have it because people demand governance yeah it's just what is it going to do and i choose it to do like protect the environment and protect you know then have a military so people can't invade and mm-hmm. stuff um and it's I, the mistrust or the anti-government movement, which I've covered as a reporter for years. Oh, you have. Yeah. And it's just so, so immature, Yeah, Dave. It's, it's as know. if there were some, like some alternative, right?
0: <laughs> right. Well, and for me, when I look at that, I think of the mistrust of the government. I mean, I think that, you know, sure, there's going to be bad apples and everything. Police, you know, there's going to be a small percentage of people in every field, whatever. But And that's all it is, is that you have that. And But for the most part people are good and right. And you have to give them a chance to do good. Right. Like, like, is that kind of how you see it a little bit?
1: I do. And I also see like, uh, it's just this thing about the government. It's like, we have, we probably have done this the best with our U S constitution of anybody in history, because the constitution was created from the careful study of the failures of the past, you know? Right. And so, the thing is is but but it's a participatory democratic republic, yeah, it relies on the people participating, and um if you're indifferent to the environment, the government is not going to pick up it's not going to do that, no and um then you're left with more degradation, you know, like uh like the saving the buffalo, right we had Yellowstone National Park. That's the world's first national park. Hmm. Well, that's where the buffalo held out barely, right? Yeah, barely. And that's because they were protected by the cavalry at the time. You know, the cavalry, and there were
0: still like in that. You know, there were still poachers trying to take them down even after you got to that point. Right, there were still people out there trying to take them out.
1: There were lots of people who could not comprehend that anybody would want to save anything, ever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, and again, you look at what's going on now, I mean, again, cocked fish or whatever, but you know, Alaska, and this is a different thing, but I mean, King salmon in Alaska, you know, you you would have thought Chinook salmon would would never, right. Never have a problem with Alaska. Right. And, and look what's going on. You know, we're seeing, I'm not sure why that's exactly going on, but we're seeing some of that. And you see it like in your work, it sounds like with sagebrush and different things, fires and and everything. So the problems are still there. It's just, how are we dealing with them?
1: That's right. And the truth is people should know this. the, Federal and state governments are working because the people want it. Yeah. We just planted 286,000 sagebrush and bitterbrush this one month of October on these big range fires in these migration and winter range for mule deer. Oh, wow. Uh, I would encourage anybody to just take a great look at what is really going on on the, say, Bureau of Land Management lands, national forest lands, um... And what's really happening, it'll make you feel a lot better, I promise, and make you want to get involved. Oh, good. It's great. River restoration, dam removals, Um, yep. you know, what? there are failures for sure everywhere, but there always will be. But man, there is some incredible, incredible conservation and restoration work going on right now.
0: Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Deddy Flies, established in 1928, is the oldest family run fly shop in the world. And you know I'm all about the history and fly fishing, which is one reason I'm super stoked to have Deddy on as a sponsor this year. Long before I made my first order with Deddy, I remember hearing stories about the quality and the history and always wanting to connect deeper with them. So that time has come now, and I share the Deddy tradition with you. Located in Livingston Manor on the banks of Willow Creek. Deddy is your welcoming place on the creek or online. Their retail and online shop have a large selection of flies, materials, fly gear, outdoor lifestyle items, books, and more. Deddy Fly's inventory consists solely of products that meet every angler's demand for highest quality and service. Of course, they offer fly fishing and casting lessons as well as guided trips. For more information, visit Deadly Flies at wetflyswing.com Deddy or give them a call 845 845- Four three nine one one six six. That's wetflyswing.com slash Deddy D E T T E. You support this podcast by clicking over through that link to Deddy. Okay. Let's get back to the show. We've covered some of these. We covered one down the Klamath dam removals was a really awesome. Yeah. Talked a little bit about that, but I want to talk a little bit on the podcast just so we don't miss that. So people can take this conversation further. But, um, so the Backcountry hunters and anglers, uh, podcast and blast. So we know how it got started. How do you, when you go into that, I mean, how are you finding topics, right? There's so many topics. How do you choose your topics? That's always a good question. I'm always thinking about.
1: That's a good one. And you're doing more, um, episodes than I'm doing. I'm getting two a month right now. Yeah. Uh, every two weeks. And, uh, so uh, stuff goes un- uncovered. Yeah. You know, like I I can't get to it. Um I like to do stuff books have been a big focus of that podcast. So we had Doug Brinkley on. Hmm. Um Tom mcguane has been on uh was one of my all time favorite. He's a you know, a, oh, uh, yeah. a novelist, American novelist. Um and he's also probably one of the greatest fly fishermen, you yep. know, and fishing writers in history. Yeah. And so I tend towards writers because I read a lot and I know who's out there. Mm-hmm. And I want to get, I would love to get John Gearack and David James Duncan. Yeah. Um, that's definitely something I want, but I, pick, I also, I try to, I don't even try to balance it, man, but I, I know, but I'll do issues like um, we just did the Ambler road up in Alaska, which is a proposed New Industrial Corridor, two hundred eleven miles to the headwaters of the Cobuck River. Oh, now where is that? What
0: is that? What part of Alaska is that?
1: It comes. It's north. It's right along the Brooks Range. You know, north central,
0: north central. Okay.
1: And it bisects the migration route of the of the beleaguered Western Arctic caribou herd. Oh, right. And in my personal opinion, and the opinion of a lot of people, I, we don't need it. We don't want it. No. You know. No. And going across the the headwaters of the Koyukon, through the Kobuk, 2,904 stream crossings with culvert. Wow. Um, gravel mines to build the road. Mm. So I've been working on that one. I do a lot of research. We did the Ford, the Snake River Dams podcast. We oh, did that yeah. One I right. saw Yeah, Yep. Um And I'll do anything that I think is part of this movement. All this movement that I feel is building from the bottom up. Yeah. That recognizes the power and importance of our connection to the earth and the waters and fishing and hunting and regenerative agriculture. All of the things that are pieces of this puzzle that make up the relationship of human beings to the earth, which sustains our every endeavor. Right. I think of that John Jeevens quote a lot, you know, all of man's pretensions is most beautiful art music. Um, all of our endeavors depend on the fact that there's six, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. God, that was good.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's hard to go, you know, there's, um, so many topics I want to cover, and like most of these, we won't be able to get to all of them. But uh, we'll, we'll have the podcast. Tell me about BHA, just high level. I know you're not necessarily directly affiliated with them, but you have kind of the name in the podcast title. But for somebody that doesn't know much about, you know, what they have going, you know, how to connect, what would you say about BHA?
1: Well, the reason, so I, I'm I've been involved with them forever, just because I knew all the people who became part of it. You know. But Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is a it's a hunting and fishing conservation group that is really focused around issues about the public lands, and the public lands being the 640 million acres of National Forest Bureau of Land Management Bureau of Rec, you know, uh, fish uh, refuges, uh, which by the way is a unique institution in the world, right? And so uh, BHA formed to do that to kind of be an a, a grassroots advocacy organization um, centered around public lands issues. Um, like in Kentucky, like if you're in the Daniel Boone National Forest, right? Or yeah. um, Missouri, I think is the Mark Twain. Um, in Alabama, it's the Bankhead. Uh, in Florida, the Ocala, you know. Uh, mm. And those because we have all the these public landscapes, which are available to all of us, there are always going to be issues and those issues also because public lands in the West are the source of 63% of all the available water hmm. Jeez. <laughs> because they're the high, higher country. Right? Uh, right. Those lands are always, there's, we should be in conflict over the management of those lands. We need the best ideas to win. And so we needed a hunters and anglers and nature lovers, mm-hmm. conservationists um, organization to sort of uh advocate for the great things yeah. study those great what what would be great right what would be good here and then um to be able to oppose the bad ideas um and so i think that's the, that's it in a, pretty much it in a nutshell which then is a awfully large
0: yeah <laughs> get the people Get the people talking, right? That's the whole thing I always go back to on this stuff is I think that's what you're saying, right? Is that you got to have the ideas. There's going to be some bad ones. There's going to be some great ones, but you got to get people talking, right? Is that the starting
1: point? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I always tell people like on this, like BHA too, um, it's, you, you have to understand that conflict is good you know, we were done by the meritocracy of like, of podcasts and social media. Yeah. You know, if everybody's just joining hands and singing Kumbaya all the time, some really bad ideas go through. That's boring too. It's boring and, it, and it's, and uh the dumber ideas can prevail. Oh, right. Gotcha. So
0: how do you do it when you're, with your podcast, when you're, you're out there, are you thinking, you know, without going to the extreme, but trying to say, Hey, this is going to be a topic that's really going to potentially go viral or Are you thinking about any of that stuff like maybe something controversial you know that sort of thing or how do you do your podcast you know is that like because
1: i again, don't i don't yeah i don't think of it that way i think of what might be uh i'm kind of selfish in that way i think of what really interests me yeah and then i i can bring that that my interest to it uh so a lot of the podcasts have been stuff that i just wanted to learn mm. yeah right <laughs> And I figured there was universality in that, right? That other people might be. (laughs) It's
0: true. It's true. I mean, I think that the number one thing from a podcast host is to be successful. And I've heard, I've interviewed some great podcast, uh, you know, mentors and stuff, but you know, they said curiosity is the number one thing you can't fake it. You can't fake curiosity on a podcast, you know, so you gotta be curious about the topic.
1: Right. And, and, and you gotta, I, I did, uh, the Southern Environmental Law Center mm. early on in the, in the podcast thing, and it was just about clean water, right? How mm-hmm. do you get it? Like, what are the laws and stuff? And and I, I think about in that, you know, in that news magazine, the week, um, they have that page. It's called boring but important. Mm. And so <laughs> I'm perfectly willing. The Southern Environmental Law Center podcast turned out to be great. It was yeah. not boring at all. It was like intense, but um. I'm willing to take on stuff like this water's of the U.S. rule, you know, Yeah. that might seem uninteresting to a lot of people. But if you'll ride with me, I always think about taking a ride in a pickup, you yep. know, if you'll ride with me, uh, you, it'll blow your mind just exactly how relevant this is to the things that you love. Right.
0: Wow. Well. Yeah, I mean, how I want to take it out here. I want to, you know, kind of respect your time, make sure we take it out here uh, pretty quick, but um I had a, a few more questions here. And one of them we kind of have this kind of conservation partner shout out segment to help wrap things up, but you know, I think we've talked about a lot of them. Are there any other groups, you know, kind of we could give a shout out to you think maybe we haven't talked about today that can get people thinking other big groups or have we talked about most of them today?
1: No, we haven't. I think that um we need a more localized Uh, like, get involved locally as well, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked about Doug's Unlimited and all. Check out what, I mean, we just finished this project, I'm so proud of this, with the Mule Deer Foundation. Mm. And you may be living in Florida or something and go, and I've never even seen a mule deer, you But we are, I have a 23-person man and woman crew planting these sagebrush and these other native species on these giant range fires in the West. Wow. And I've been doing this for seven years as well, seven seasons. Hmm. And uh, the Mule Deer Foundation is doing these incredible large-scale, landscape-scale projects across the West, you know, and in Alaska for blacktail deer. Mm. The Rough Grouse Society is advocating for something that I think is so incredibly important, which is to... <laughs> so it, there's, a, there's a lot going on, right? So yeah. we have not managed... Like, there's forests that are now growing in places that used to be grassland or mm, edge habitat, sure. right? Yep. And there's a lot of, like, uh, eastern cedar encroachment, which locks out light to native plants that, in Native American times, would have been maintained by fire. Sure. So there's all of this biodiversity work being done by the Rough Grouse Society, uh, physics forever is doing huge projects across america they have quail forever with them
2: mm-hmm.
1: about reintroducing fire in a sustainable and holistic way to landscapes that haven't had it since white settlement and that is bringing back not just Bob White quail which are incredibly wonderful to hunt mm-hmm. right <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. yep
1: but it is also doing watershed health pollinator rejervis, native plants that come back with monarchs and all of these native bee species right mm. and what it is is everything is connected to everything else is like native americans had tried to explain to us a long time ago <laughs> yeah
0: they they, but, they knew what they were doing didn't they
1: they knew what they were doing and they were kind of um they were kind of selectively farming this huge landscape for them without taking so much from it that they they wiped it out right yeah um, like you think about you now where I've been in Alabama a lot in the last couple of years and the, and, and, um, the Coosa river had mm. all these fish weirs on it and the fish would swim into these weirs. The local, the, like the Creek Indians could go and just collect a week's worth of fish, you know, in 15 minutes. Right. Yeah. Um, and then those fish weirs are now under like 20 feet of water. Cause we wanted those rivers for navigation. Oh, right. Um, it was a trade, right? Yep. But anyway, there's restoration all over. Quail forever, pheasants forever, mule deer foundation, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Right, tons. I mean, the Elk Foundation. If you love native wildlife like grizzly bears and and uh, people people go, well, aren't they anti-wolf? Right. They're not anti-wolf. They're pro-Elk.
0: <laughs> Pro, exactly. Well, that gets into and- it yeah i mean that it gets into a whole other conversation right with the, it the,
1: does but yeah. you don't have wolves without elk yeah and so the rocky mountain Elk foundations project over 30 years now of of buying conservation easements or making sure that elk have a winter range in the west yeah have been the linchpin of restoration of all kinds of species and landscapes and, like, just nature writ large mm. in the West that would not have happened without the Rocky Mountain hill Foundation. Yeah, that's huge. And so it's real, man, and and uh, it's kind of unique to America, like, that all these citizens believe in this stuff with their 20 bucks. Right. <laughs> you know, and going to banquets and meeting people, like, at Pheasants Forever, you go to pheasant Fest, you meet some of the most interesting people in the world. You go to Trout Unlimited stuff, like in Michigan, yeah. where it all started. You know, you meet some of the most interesting people you'll ever meet.
0: I know, God, that's so good. I mean, it, there's so much, so much good stuff there. You mentioned, uh, you know, a couple topics. I mean, wolves, and and obviously that's a huge topic. I don't bring this up to try to, like we we're saying, try to create some, you know. Uh, you know, discussion about like a sure. hot point. But for me, I think of diversity. I think of like any natural population. I always think of this, right? The more diverse it is, it seems like the better, you know, the more diverse. Well, the wild... more
1: resilient.
0: Yeah, the more resilient. So what's your take? Yeah. Do you give us high level just on wolves, you know, in general. And, you know what I mean? We don't have to go deep on this, but I think there's a lot of people that think even hunters, right? Lots of hunters are like, wow, why do we want wolves? They're killing our animals. Like what, what's your take? Give sure. it to the general population. What should we know?
1: Well, I can enrage everybody simultaneously. <laughs> uh, there you go. The world needs a few. They, they, I think of worlds is kind of like myself. The world needs a few of us. It can't take a lot of us. Right. And uh, the truth of it is, is that wolf recovery in the West, reintroduction is a little bit different. It's a more nuanced idea, right? Yeah, yeah. Wolf recovery in the West has been a incredible success story of the Endangered Species Act and in places like most of montana uh that has been successful and the wolves have not destroyed everything mm. nor have they have killing a few wolves caused any kind of cataclysms in wolf land yeah that's
0: it <laughs> right so that's it so things are working so basically with this wolf reintroduction you know things are working for i mean there's this stuff's working like there's wolves out there that are natural and breeding and yep. yeah and they're not killing every elk out there
1: no, but I mean, they have to be managed. Yeah. And they should be managed at the state level when they are recovered to the ESA guidelines. Gotcha. And there's a Alfred Lloyd Tennyson poem, you know, Nature, so careful of the type she seems, so careless of the one. Mm. Like, if you have wolves on the landscape um, and they're chasing somebody's cows on private land, you know, that people aren't going to put up with that. Yeah, no. And so you have to be able it's uh yeah, you have to be able to take care of that, and you have to have that's called a social tolerance, and social tolerance is built through pragmatic decisions, and then the most angry of the people who hate everything uh, hate wolves will kind of their ideas will be kind of marginalized by the effectiveness of the policy mm. And they the people who just love wolves and they love them and they're cuddly and they love them and they just can't stand to see any of them ever injured. Um, those people will be marginalized as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's the extremes. You know,
1: um, yeah. And it's like, you know, the battle between the wolf haters and what people call the wolf humpers or the wolf. Oh, wolf right. <laughs> um, yeah. Those two extremes or not, they can't run the show, you know?
0: Right. No, that's the other great
1: point. Yeah. Yeah. 10rage folks uh reintroduction of uh, stuff like that was a really hot button difficult issue. I still believe and I, I I'm unpopular for this on the wolf loving side but I still believe that had we protected habitat continuity migration corridors, winter range for elk that the elk would have uh, that the wolves would have recovered in the Rockies if they were protected by the ESA. And they would have recovered slowly, and there would have been a lot less fury. Right, Naturally. More naturally. Yeah, more naturally. And then, and then you get these— di- The Wolves are such an incredible species. You get these disperser individuals who— mm. They're kind of like me or you in a way. They like, got to see what's over the next hill. Right. They take off to California, right? That one wolf. They take off to California or Missouri or like— We had one up here that got hit on the highway in Bale, Colorado that was collared up here where I live. Oh, wow. So, you just have this species that is inherently fascinating and uh, individualistic. And um, I I value it completely. I I feel kinship with wolves and stuff, but like, you know, I mean, you can't have like a 24-wolf super pack. Yeah. Racing through somebody's cattle ranch. Exa- well, and
0: I think it goes back to, you know, I talk about this just with water and rivers, too. You know, I mean, there's places where, you know, we have had a lot of influence, human influence that's impacted. It, and you can't just let it just completely go on its own because it needs right. a little bit of help until it can get to that point. Right. Where it's like a Yellowstone National Park or something like that.
1: Yep, exactly. And and especially when in the West, particularly in, everywhere, we have to have private land as part of our conservation vision. Yeah, and that land is owned by people like me and you, and we have like concerns because we it's ours, and so you have to have incentives and deals and handshakes, and you probably have to have a a law somewhere that says, well, don't you can't kill the last red cockaded woodpecker, dude? Right? Yeah, exactly. And then you shake hands and drink a cup of coffee and say, how are we going to make this work? Yeah, because it has to work on private land. That's the key and yeah. it has to work for all of us on some level you know
0: yep people talking again right i'm sure you heard a lot of that just keep people whether they whatever side you're on if you're talking if you're having coffee if you're in that pickup together right it's a, it's a better chance
1: yeah for sure and i and and uh the, a, a majority of people do recognize uh intact natural landscapes conservation biodiversity hunting and fishing as a value to be preserved and and conserved and and carried on.
0: Yeah. So you think the majority, most people in this country, whether you've never, maybe you have never left the city, but you think most of those people still value that, they understand that.
1: Well, I think that they might. I think we're increasingly abstracted. But if you were to teach people somehow where their water comes from, mm. you would have a whole new new generation of conservationists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right or
0: or where their chicken comes from or or any of that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in that case, you might have a whole lot of people wanting to buy chickens from a local guy. Oh man.
0: Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> it what's education. You know, I think about the back to the American Buffalo, you know, when it was down on the brink of extinction, you know, and all that, they, some of those people, you know, they had their farms and then people were even displaying them in the Smithsonian. Yep. And that was huge because people are like, wow, okay, I can, I'm looking at a Buffalo now. I, I understand it. Right. It's like that education is huge.
1: Yes. And the celebration of that as an American value, like Teddy Roosevelt did. Hmm. Where he saw the the ruin of the American resources as a betrayal of the American dream, um, that was huge, and it still is. I, I always say, man, don't lower your expectations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, like you you kids deserve to swim in that creek, right? Yeah. You and your wife deserve, as American citizens. To go down to a creek and have the kids playing in it and catching crawdads and fishing with a bobber, that is, don't lower your expectations. Right, that's
0: it. You said 640 million acres. Are those acres uh, decreasing, increasing, staying the same, those public lands?
1: They're mostly staying the same. And there are rules against, laws against selling the public lands. Yeah, um, they can be traded, and they in certain, certain circumstances, federal public lands can be sold, but it's unusual, and it has to go through a big process because the citizens expect to have retained their the, our birthright, right? The lands that we own as American citizens in common. Yeah, they can't just the government can't just wake up one day. They have tried, by the way.
0: Right, they've tried. They've tried.
1: Yeah, and Herbert Hoover tried to give them all away the to the state.
0: Oh wow, God. How how did that go? How did that go?
1: The states didn't want them because uh, these are lands. People people should understand this is the subject of my my book. But these are lands that were left over after all the Homestead Acts gave away everything that was like farmable or livable, right? Mm. And then if you live, say, in Mississippi or Alabama, um, what state are you in? Uh, Oregon. So Oregon would be different. Like like that, the Bureau of Land Management land in eastern Oregon was not settled by people because it didn't have any water. Oh, right. So it remained in federal hands because it was never claimed. But like if you're in Mississippi where there's lots of water, that land, the Bienville National Forest, for instance, um, that was land that was cut over and farmed so hard that all the topsoil kind of disappeared and it was abandoned yeah. and oh, sold wow. to the federal government by paper companies or timber companies that no longer had any use for it, right? Wow, gotcha. And that was done under the Federal Weeks Act of 1911, where it allowed people to, the federal government, to buy land that was so degraded that nobody knew what they could to do with it. And that's the Bankhead National Forest in Alabama, for instance, the Tuskegee National Forest in Alabama, um, the uh, Kasachi in Louisiana, uh, it's just like the, the history of this stuff is so incredible. That's why I've like spent three years on it, but I love that. Um, in Montana, Eastern Montana, of course has very little water, right? It's, it's mm. dry prairie. Yep. And so a lot of that remained in federal hands or after the dust bowl under the federal Bankhead Jones act, they were the federal government was able to, take back land that had been abandoned by homesteaders. We were starving. Mm. And that became Bankhead Jones lands, which are now managed by the Bureau of Land Management. But like, these are not lands that people wanted. And the federal government said, no. All right. (laughs) They were lands that were unclaimed. We we gave away millions upon millions upon millions of acres under the Homestead Act's. And I, I totally acknowledge that this was after the Native American wars, yeah, right? Right. We conquested that land from the people who were here. Um, and the, it's funny because the Romans did something very similar with their expansion where they were fighting the, the Gauls and the Celts and the Saracens, you know? Yeah. And for about 250 years, the Romans had what was called the Ager Publicus, and it was public land. And it would have been taken from conquested peoples. Mm. And people lived on that land. They ran goats and they lived out there. And then over time, the legion, the Roman legion and the emperors, as it became more and more corrupt, you know, (laughs) they took over that land and took it away from the people. And so that's something to think about. If you believe that history doesn't repeat itself, but it can rhyme.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: If you look at the assaults, if the plans on like selling off the American public lands or giving them to the states so that the states can sell them off, right? Um, it's really reflected in that that Roman time of oh, ad wow. and the yeah, it's pretty, it's fascinating.
0: That is no history repeats itself. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know. I, again, just thinking back, some tragic stuff. But I, I was, you know. Just like the Holocaust, the German, you know, the yep. Hitler. I mean, he, you know, some of that stuff, right? He looked back at the U.S. and the way the U.S. handled the Native Americans with essentially kind of a genocide, right? He he used that as as a way to say, "Hey, this is look what the U.S. did. That's all we're doing." Yep.
1: Yep, and we're taking Poland.
0: Yeah, we're taking Poland. The same yeah. exact things, so, or at least that's yeah. how he thought about it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And it's um, and it, it's a, it's complicated, and uh, we talk about history, um. And it being sanitized, right, by the victor?
0: Mm, yeah, that's right. You
1: know, my take nowadays, I got to give you this before I yeah. we can sign up. Yeah, let's do my it. take nowadays is that these public lands are owned by all Americans, you know, and that includes the Native Americans. And if you look at the Bears Ears National Monument plan, which was so con- became controversial after 2016, but before that was not so much. Um, there are five. Native American tribes there who worked on the management uh, for the Bears Ears National Monument in Utah. And the future of the American public lands lies in really good tribal engagement and Native American uh, management to help. And it's going to be better with the input from the, the people who had known that land for, you know, 10,000 years. It's not just a seat at the table. It's, um, we need that input now for the future management of public lands. And then we can all have, we can hold on to this thing, this wonderful thing together. Mm. And that, so that, this is, we're talking, we're, this is kind of like wolves. We're touching on a, a yep. topic now that's a big, topic. check out the original management plan for the Bears Ears National Monument. Okay. And you'll see why, and, and you'll see why it was so opposed by some folks who didn't, don't want that. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. (laughs) You're right. This is good. Well, we'll put, you know, like like I said, your podcast has a great uh, resource of episodes. So I'm sure some of these topics they can follow up people listening out on that. Um tell us on your book before we let you get out of here. What's the name of the the book you have going and give a shout out there? Yield.
1: Well, I think it's I don't know yet, but I think it the subtitle is Journeys on America's Public Lands.
2: Uh Uh-huh.
1: And um I've been traveling for a couple of years on it um and writing on it for a couple of years. And I'm I'm a maybe a year off on delivery, but uh, it's just about the history and of public of the American public lands. Mm-hmm. And then the second part is just profiles some national Forest or Bureau of Land Management lands, and like what's really there. For instance, like in the Apalachicola Forest in Nash- in Florida, mm-hmm. it's just and the history there is so incredibly. I interest in that. I don't I think that if you read that chapter of the book, you would become an advocate for keeping that land in public hands and managed by the US Forest Service forever. Right. And anybody that nested different, you would be able to look at this chapter and go like, but what about Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Wow, this is good. So when is this book do you think it'll be out?
1: I think I can do it. I don't know how long it's gonna to take to bring it into full shape, but probably twenty twenty five. Okay. Twenty five, good. Um, and if I can't get that, I'm in big trouble. So yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm going elk hunting tomorrow. But it's a kind of a narrow window.
0: I love it. I love it. You're going. On. We'll we'll, uh, we'll update the link in 25 when we get there and put that in the show notes as well. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll let you get out of here and get to your hunting uh, preparation. But I just wanted to say. You know, I think we'll have to get you back on if you can down the line because I think there's a lot of top. This has been a great conversation. I think we could talk for hours here and, and keep going on some of this stuff. So um, I just appreciate all your time today and all the good work you've been doing over the years and excited to keep in touch with you.
1: Yeah, you too, Dave. I, I appreciate the, your interest here. Like um, your listenership is like perfect for yeah. this. You know, you can, I mean, this is how it works.
0: Yeah. This is the groups. This is like a small community of ours who don't know about you. And now they know about you, right? And then they're going to learn about your stuff and your other groups that you're supporting and all that.
1: Yeah. And it's just like, be engaged, man. Like, you got three score and 10 on this planet in this assembly of molecules. That's right. Do something with it. Do something with (laughs) it. Awesome.
0: All right, Hal, we'll we'll, we'll be talking to you soon. Yes, sir. Thank you, man. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly
2: Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.